0: Where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 21 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Philippa of Hainault, Chapter 2, Part 2. Queen Philippa, with her son the Black Prince, paid a visit to Norwich in 1350, and there held a magnificent tournament. The royal mother and her heroic son were received by the inhabitants of the city, enriched by her statistical wisdom, with the utmost gratitude, and were entertained by the corporation at an expense of 37 pounds, four shillings, six and a half pence, as appears by their records. The grand victory of Poitiers distinguished the year 1357 A prouder day than that of Neville's Cross was the 5th of May, 1357, when Edward the Black Prince landed at Sandwich with his royal prisoner, King John, and presented him to his mother after that glorious entry into London, where the prince tacitly gave John the honors of a suzerain by permitting him to mount the famous white charger on which he rode at Poitiers, and which was captured with him. At the same time that the queen received her vanquished kinsman, her son presented to her another prisoner, who, young as he was, was far fiercer in his captivity than the king of France. This was Philip, the fourth son of King John, a little hero of fourteen, who had fought desperately by his father's side on the lost field, and had been captured with some difficulty alive, and not till he was desperately wounded." The first day of his arrival at the court of England, he gave a proof of his fierceness, by starting from the table, where he sat at dinner, with the king and queen and his father, and boxing the ears of King Edward's cupbearer, for serving the king of England before the king of France. For, he said, though his father, King John, was unfortunate, he was the sovereign of the king of England. Edward and Philippa only smiled at the boy's petulance, and treated him with indulgent benevolence, and when he quarrelled with the Prince of Wales at a game of chess, they most courteously decided the disputed move in favour of Prince Philip that renowned champion, Sir Bertrand du Guesclin, was one of the prisoners of Poitiers. One day when Queen Philippa was entertaining at her court a number of the noble French prisoners, the Prince of Wales proposed that Du Guesclin should name his own ransom according to the etiquette of the times, adding that whatever sum he mentioned, be it small or great, should set him free. The valiant Breton valued himself at a hundred thousand crowns. The Prince of Wales started at the immense sum and asked Sir Bertrand how he could ever expect to raise such an enormous ransom. I know, replied the hero, a hundred knights in my native Bretagne who would mortgage their last acre rather than Du Guesclin should either languish in captivity, or be rated below his value. Yea, and there is not a woman in France, now toiling at her distaff, who would not devote a year's earnings to set me free, for well have I deserved of their sex. And if all the fair spinners in France employ their hands to redeem me, think you, prince, whether I shall bide much longer with you. Queen Philippa, who had listened with great attention to the discussion between her son and his prisoner, now spoke, I name, she said, 50,000 crowns, my son, as my contributions towards your gallant prisoner's ransom, for though an enemy to my husband, a knight who is famed for the courteous protection he has afforded to my sex, deserves the assistance of every woman. Guesclin immediately threw himself at the feet of the generous queen, saying, "'Ah, lady, being the ugliest knight in France, I never reckoned on any goodness from your sex, excepting from those whom I aided or protected by my sword. But your bounty will make me think less despicably of myself.' Philippa, as is usual in the brightest specimens of female excellence, was the friend of her own sex, and honored those men most who paid the greatest reverence to women. The most glorious festival ever known in England was that held at Windsor, in the commencement of the year 1358, for the diversion of the two royal prisoners, John, King of France, and David Bruce of Scotland. The round tower at Windsor, despite the heavy expenses of war, was completed, on purpose that the feast, called the Round Table of the Knights of the Garter, might be held within it. The captive majesties of France and Scotland were invited to that feast as guests, and sat one on each side of Edward Third. King John and King David tilted at the lists. The interest of the ceremony was further enhanced by the fatal accident which befell the stout Earl of Salisbury, who was killed in one of the encounters at the lists. Report says that King John of France was still more captivated with the beauty of Lady Salisbury than King Edward had been, and as hopelessly, for that fair and virtuous woman retired into the deepest seclusion after the calamitous death of her lord. After the Windsor Festival, Edward placed King John in an irksome captivity, and prepared for the reinvasion of France. Queen Philippa embarked with her husband for the new campaign on the 29th of October, 1359. All her sons were with the army, excepting the little prince, Thomas of Woodstock, who, at the redoubtable age of five years, was left guardian of the kingdom, and represented the majesty of his father's person, by sitting on the throne when parliaments were held. After Edward had marched through France without resistance, and, if the truth must be spoken, desolating as he went, a bleeding and suffering country in a most ungenerous manner, his career was stopped, as he was hastening to lay siege to Paris by the hand of god itself one of those dreadful thunderstorms which at distant cycles pass over the continent of france literally attacked the invading army within two leagues of chartres and wreaked its utmost fury on the proud chivalry of england six thousand of edward's finest horses and one thousand of his bravest cavaliers among whom were the heirs of warwick and morley were struck dead before him the guilty ambition of Edward smote his conscience, he knelt down on the spot, and, spreading his hands toward the church of Our Lady of Chartres, vowed to stop the effusion of blood, and make peace on the spot with France. His queen, who wished well for the noble-minded king of France, held him to his resolution, and a peace containing tolerable articles for France was concluded at Bretigny. The queen, King Edward, and the royal family returned, and landed at Rye, 18th of May, ten days after the peace. After the triumph of Poictiers, the king and queen no longer opposed the union of the Prince of Wales with Joanna the Fair, although that princess was four years older than Edward, and her character and disposition were far from meeting the approval of the queen. Edward and Joanna were married in the queen's presence, at Windsor Chapel, October tenth, thirteen 1361. After this marriage, King Edward invested his son with the duchy of Aquitaine, and he departed, with his bride, in an evil hour, to govern that territory. Froissart, speaking of the farewell visit of the queen, says, I, John Froissart, author of these chronicles, was in the service of Queen Philippa, when she accompanied King Edward and the royal family to Berkhamstead Castle to take leave of the Prince and Princess of Wales on their departure for Aquitaine, I was at that time twenty-four years old and one of the clerks of the chamber to my Lady the Queen. During this visit, as I was seated on a bench, I heard an ancient knight expounding some of the prophecies of Merlin to the Queen's ladies. According to him, neither the Prince of Wales nor the Duke of Clarence, those sons of King Edward, will wear the crown of England, but it will fall to the house of Lancaster. This gives a specimen of the conversation with which maids of honor in the reign of Queen Philippa were entertained, not with scandal or fashions, but with the best endeavors of an ancient knight, to tell a fortune, or peep into fortuity, by the assistance of the wizard Merlin. King John, soon after the peace, took leave of the Queen for the purpose of returning to France that he might arrange for the payment of his ransom. He sent to England the young Lord de Curcy, Count of Soissons, as one of the hostages for its liquidation. During the sojourn of de Curcy in England, he won the heart of Lady Isabella, the eldest daughter of Edward and Philippa. After remaining some time in France, and finding it impossible to fulfill his engagements, King John returned to his captivity, and redeemed his parole and his hostages with this noble settlement. If honor were lost elsewhere upon earth, it ought to be found in the conduct of kings. Froissart thus describes the return of that heroic but unfortunate sovereign. News was brought to the king, who was at that time with Queen Philippa at Altham, a very magnificent palace the English kings have seven miles from London, that the captive king had landed at Dover. This was in 1364, the 1st of January. King Edward sent off a grand deputation, saying how much he and the queen were rejoiced to see him in England, and this, it may be supposed, all things considered, King John readily believed. King John offered at the shrine of Thomas of Becket at Canterbury on his journey, and taking the road to London, he arrived at Eltham, where Queen Philippa and King Edward were ready to receive him. It was on a Sunday in the afternoon. There were, between that time and supper, many grand dances and carols, at which it seems the young Lord de Courcy distinguished himself by singing and dancing. I can never relate how very honorably the king and queen behaved to King John at Eltham. They afterwards lodged him with great pomp in the palace of the Savoy, where he visited King Edward at Westminster whenever he had a mind to see him or the queen, taking boat and coming from Savoy stairs by water to the palace. But King John's health was declining, and he died at the Savoy palace the same year. The marriage soon after took place, between the elegant de Courcy and the princess royal. Although an emperor's grandson, this nobleman could scarcely be considered a match for the daughter of Edward the Third. But since the escape of her faithless betrothed, the Count of Flanders, Isabella had entered into no marriage contract, and was, at the time of her nuptials, turned of thirty. On occasion of the marriage festivals, King Edward presented his queen with two rich corsets, one embroidered with the words, mine bidden nay, and the other with her motto, ike rude Muque. Prince Lionel at this time espoused the ward of Queen Philippa, Elizabeth de Burgh, who brought, as a dower, at least one-third of Ireland, with the mighty inheritance of the Clares, earls of Gloucester. Edward III afterwards created Lionel, Duke of Clarence. This prince, through whose daughter, married to Edmund Mortimer, the line of York derived as primogenitor, was a handsome and courageous Flemish giant, mild-tempered and amiable, as persons of great strength and stature, by a beneficent law of nature, usually are. Lionel is rather an obscure, though important person in English history. Here is his portrait by the last of our rhyming chroniclers. In all the world there was no prince him like, of high stature and all seemliness, above all men within the whole king Reich kingdom. By the shoulders might be seen, doubtless, in hall was he made like for gentleness, in other places famed for rhetoric, but in the field, a lion marmorike. Death soon dissolved the wedlock of Elizabeth de Burg. She left a daughter but a few days old. This motherless babe the Queen Philippa adopted for her own, and became sponsor to her, with the Countess of Warwick, as we learn from the friar's genealogy, when mentioning Lionel of Clarence. His wife was dead and at Clare buried, and no heir had be but his daughter Fair. Philippe, that height as chronicle specified, whom Queen Philippe christened for his heir, the Archbishop of York for her compeer, her godmother also of Warwick Countess, a lady likewise of great worthiness. John of Gaunt, the third surviving son of Philippa, married Blanche, the heiress of Lancaster. The Princess Mary was wedded to the Duke of Bretagne, but died early in life. Edmund Langley, Earl of Cambridge, afterwards Duke of York, married Isabella of Castile, whose sister, his brother, John of Gaunt, took for his second wife. The youngest prince, Thomas of Woodstock, afterwards created Duke of Gloucester, married an English lady, the co heiress of Humphrey de Bohun, constable of England. Margaret, the fifth daughter of Edward III, was given in marriage to the Earl of Pembroke. She was one of the most learned ladies of her age, and a distinguished patroness of Chaucer. Notwithstanding their great strength and commanding stature, scarcely one of the sons of Philippa reached old age. Even John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster, was only fifty-nine at his demise, The premature introduction to the cares of state, the weight of plate armor, and the violent exercise in the tilt-yard, by way of relaxation from the severe toils of partisan warfare, seemed to have brought early old age on this gallant brotherhood of princes. The queen had been the mother of twelve children. Eight survived her. Every one of the sons of Philippa were famous champions in the field. The Black Prince and John of Gaunt were learned, elegant, and brilliant, and strongly partook of the genius of Edward I and the Provençal Plantagenets. Lionel and Edmund were good-natured and brave. They were comely in features, and gigantic in stature. They possessed no great vigor of intellect, and were both rather addicted to the pleasures of the table. Thomas of Woodstock was fierce, petulant, and rapacious. He possessed, however, considerable accomplishments, and is reckoned among the royal and noble authors he wrote a history of the laws of battle, which is perspicuous in style. He was the great patron of Gower the poet, who belonged originally to the household of this prince. The queen saw the promise of a successor to the throne of England in the progeny of her best-beloved son, Edward. Her grandson Richard was born at Bordeaux before she succumbed to her final malady. Philippa had not the misery of living to see the change in the prosperity of her family to witness the long-pining decay of the heroic Prince of Wales, the grievous change in his health and disposition, or the imbecility that gradually took possession of the once mighty mind of her husband. Before these reverses took place, the queen was seized with a dropsical malady, under which she languished about two years. All her sons were absent on the continent when her death approached, excepting her youngest, Thomas of Woodstock. The black prince had just concluded his Spanish campaign and was ill in Gascony. Lionel of Clarence was at the point of death in Italy. The queen's secretary, Froissart, had accompanied that prince when he went to be married to Violante of Milan. On the return of Froissart, he found his royal mistress was dead, and he thus describes her deathbed from the detail of those who were present and heard her last words. I must now speak of the death of the most courteous liberal and noble lady that ever reigned in her time, the Lady Philippa of Hainault, Queen of England. While her son, the Duke of Lancaster, was encamped in the valley of Torneham, ready to give battle to the Duke of Burgundy, this death happened in England, to the infinite misfortune of King Edward, his children, and the whole kingdom. That excellent Lady Queen, who had done so much good, aiding all knights, ladies and damsels when distressed, who had applied to her, was at this time dangerously sick at Windsor Castle, and every day her disorder increased. When the good queen perceived that her end approached, she called the king, and extending her right hand from under the bedclothes, put it into the right hand of King Edward, who was oppressed with sorrow, and thus spoke, "'We have, my husband,' enjoyed our long union in happiness, peace, and prosperity. But I entreat you, before I depart, and we are forever separated in this world, that you will grant me three requests. King Edward, with sighs and tears, replied, Lady, name them. Whatever be your requests, they shall be granted. My lord, she said, I beg you will fulfill whatever engagements I have entered into, with merchants for their fares, as well on this as on the other side of the sea. I beseech you to fulfill whatever gifts or legacies I have made, or left to churches wherein I have paid my devotions, and to all my servants, whether male or female. And when it shall please God to call you hence, you will choose no other sepulcher than mine, and that you will lie by my side in the cloisters of Westminster Abbey the king in tears replied, Lady, all this shall be done. Soon after, the good lady made the sign of the cross on her breast, and having recommended to the king her youngest son, Thomas, who was present, praying to God, she gave up her spirit, which I firmly believe was caught up by holy angels, and carried to the glory of heaven, for she had never done anything by thought or deed to endanger her soul. Thus died this admirable queen of England, in the year of grace, 1369, the vigil of the Assumption of the Virgin, the 14th of August. Information of this heavy loss was carried to the English army at Torneham, which greatly afflicted everyone, more especially her son, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Philippa's words were not complied with to the letter her grave is not by her husband's side at Westminster Abbey, but at his feet. Her statue in alabaster is placed on the monument. Skelton's translation of her Latin epitaph, hung on a tablet close by her tomb, is as follows. Fair Philippe, William Haino's child, and younger daughter dear, of roseate hue and beauty bright, in tomb lies hilled here. King Edward, through his mother's will and noble's good consent, took her to wife, and joyfully with her his time he spent. Her brother John, a martial man, and eager valiant knight, did link this woman to this king in bonds of marriage bright. This match and marriage thus in blood did bind the flemings sure to Englishmen, by which they did the Frenchman's wreck procure. This Philippe dowered in gifts full rare, and treasures of the mind, in beauty bright, religion, faith, to all and each most kind. A fruitful mother Philippe was, full many a son she bred, and brought forth many a worthy knight, hardy and full of dread. A careful nurse to all students. At Oxford she did found Queen's College and Dame Paula's school, that did her fame resound. The wife of Edward, dear, Queen Philippe lieth here. Learn to live. Truth obliges us to divest Queen Philippa of one good deed, which was in fact out of her power to perform she is generally considered to be the first foundress of the magnificent Queen's College at Oxford. It was founded, indeed, by her chaplain, that noble character, Robert de Eglesfield, who, with modesty equal to his learning and merits, placed it under the protection of his royal mistress and called it her foundation and the College of the Queen. Philippa herself, the consort of a monarch perpetually engaged in foreign war and the mother of a large family, contributed but a mite towards this splendid foundation. This was a yearly rent of twenty marks to the sustenance of six scholar chaplains, to be paid by her receiver. Queen Philippa's principal charitable donation was to the Hospital of the Nuns of St. Catherine by the Tower. She likewise left donations to the canons of the new chapel of St. Stephen, which Edward the Third had lately built, as the domestic place of worship to Westminster Palace. The only shade of unpopularity ever cast on the conduct of Philippa was owing to the rapacity of her purveyors, after her children grew up. The royal family was numerous, and the revenues, impoverished by constant war, were very slender, and therefore every absolute due was enforced, from tenants of the crown, by the purveyors of the royal household. The damsels of the queen's bedchamber were pensioned by King Edward after her death, according to her request. He charges his exchequer to pay during the terms of their separate lives on account of their good and faithful services to Philippa, late queen of England. First to the beloved damsel, Alicia de Preston, 10 marks yearly, at Pasch and Michaelmas. Likewise to Matilda Fisher, to Elizabeth Pershore, to Joanna Colley, 10 marks yearly, to Joanna Cousin, to Philippa the Picard, and to Agatha Liergen, a hundred shillings yearly, and to Matilda Radscroft and Agnes de Saxelby, five marks yearly. The name of Alice Perers does not appear on this list of beloved damsels, but a little further on, in the federa, occurs a well-known and disgraceful grant. Know all that we give and concede to our beloved Alicia Peers, late damsel of the chamber of our dearest consort Philippa deceased, and to her heirs and executors, all the jewels, goods, and chattels that the said queen left in the hands of Euphemia, who was wife to Walter de Heselarton, knight, and the said Euphemia is to deliver them to the said Alicia. on receipt of this order. It is to be feared that the king's attachment to this woman had begun during Philippa's lingering illness, for in 1368 she obtained a gift of a manor that had belonged to the king's aunt, and in the course of 1369, she was enriched by the grant of several manors. But we will not pursue this subject. We are not obliged to trace the events of the dotage and folly of the once great Edward, or show the absurdity of which he was guilty, when he made the infamous Alice Peerers the queen's successor in his affections. During his youth, and the brilliant maturity of his life, Philippa's royal partner was worthy of the intense and faithful love she bore him. According to this portrait, Edward was not only a king, but a king among men, highly gifted in mind, person, and genius. Edward Third was just six feet in stature, exactly shaped and strongly made, his limbs beautifully turned, his face and nose somewhat long and high, but exceedingly comely his eyes sparkling like fire, his looks manly, his air and movements most majestic. He was well versed in law, history, and the divinity of the times. He understood and spoke readily Latin, French, Spanish, and German. Whilst the court was distracted with the factions which succeeded the death of the Black Prince, when John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, was suspected of aiming at the crown, a most extraordinary story was circulated in England, relating to a confession supposedly made by Queen Philippa, on her deathbed, to William of Wykeham, Bishop of Winchester, that John of Gaunt was neither the son of Philippa, nor Edward Third but a porter's son of Ghent, for the queen had told him that she brought forth, not a son, but a daughter at Ghent, that she overlaid and killed the little princess by accident, and dreading the wrath of King Edward for the death of his infant, she persuaded the porter's wife, a Flemish woman, to change her living son, who was born at the same time, for the dead princess. And so the queen nourished and brought up the man now called Duke of Lancaster, which she bare not. And all these things did the queen on her deathbed declare, in confession to Bishop Wykeham, and earnestly prayed him, that ever it chanceth, this son of the Flemish porter affecteth the kingdom, he will make his stock and lineage known to the world, lest a false heir should inherit the throne of England. The inventor of this story did not remember that of all the sons of Philippa, John of Gaunt most resembled his royal sire in the high majestic lineaments and piercing eyes, which spoke of the descent of the Plantagenets of southern Europe. The portraits of Edward III, of the elegant black prince, and of John of Gaunt, are all marked with as strong an air of individuality as if they had been painted by the accurate holbein the close observer of history will not fail to notice that with the life of queen philippa the happiness the good fortune and even the respectability of edward the third and his family departed and scenes of strife sorrow and folly distracted the court where she had once promoted virtue justice and well-regulated munificence